Morning Church family. Or in Espanol, buenos dias, Iglesia. Jesus, what a man. He's, a, he's our Savior and our friend. That's good. That's good news. This morning we are going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. And if you would like to use your pew Bible in front of you, uh, that'll be page 955. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, church. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, church? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of God. Thank you, Zach. Again, welcome everybody. We're glad you're here. By now, hopefully you found 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're continuing this summer series called Exploring Christianity. Exploring Christianity. And so... Uh, hopefully, if you're watching online or maybe you're, you're here again as a guest of somebody else, um, and, and maybe you have a lot of questions about Christianity. What is Christianity all about? What do Christians actually believe? That's the purpose of this series. And, and uh, if you are a Christian, and maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time, don't tune out because the topics that we're covering, the scriptures that we're covering are obviously also applicable to us. And as Christians, we can still have a lot of questions about these things, don't we? Uh, none, no, no topic probably gets more uh, pushback than the topic of sexuality, Christianity and sexuality. The Christian sex ethic is outdated, outmoded at best, and at worst, it's intolerant, hateful, unloving, 
anti-gay, homophobic, dangerous, at worst. And that should break our hearts as Christians, that the faith, the, the love of God, the thing that should bring the most hope and the most love and the most life is seen by so many in the world as dangerous and hateful, that should break our hearts. And again, maybe you're a Christian sitting here thinking, yeah, I've heard the Christian sex ethic my whole life. I still don't get it. It seems random, arbitrary. Is God just making up rules as He goes? Shouldn't it change over time? Just because God said it thousands of years ago, does it still apply? Don't things change with time? Are we really supposed to listen to what Zach just read from Scripture? Did God really say? Fill in the blank. So what does the Bible actually say? What is, uh, what is Christianity's true sexual ethic? Why do we have it? Is it possible? What if the purpose of sexuality is actually to point us to a loving God? What if the purpose of sexuality is actually to worship that loving God? That's going to be what I'm going to try to convince you of this morning. I'm going to try to convince you of this morning. Lesson number one. Your sexuality is not your identity. You see, the Bible gives us a very balanced view of sexuality. It says on the one hand that sexuality is super important. But it also says on the other hand that it is not ultimate. It's not the greatest good. It is not your identity, as, as we'll try to lay out here as we look through this Scripture together. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know, look at it in, in your Bible, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is giving them a list of the unrighteous. It's a vice list. It's very common in ancient literature. Lists of virtues, lists of vices. And he's giving them one here, and he's saying, he's something, saying something very serious. These folks are outside of the kingdom of God. And we should not take that lightly. And in the, in, in the beginning of this list comes three words regarding sexuality. The sexually immoral, the adulterer, and men who practice homosexuality. The sexually immoral, that's a very general term, pornos, which, which means all kinds of sexual immorality. It's a catch-all term. Adultery, we should know what that is. That's sex outside of the marriage bond. And then in the ESV, it says men who practice homosexuality, but it's really two nouns in the Greek. No verb, just two nouns. Paul uses two nouns, one describing the passive partner and one describing the active partner. Malakos and arsenkoite are the two Greek words. When Paul lists these things in his list and says these are outside of the kingdom, he is 
pushing back really hard against the current sexual ethic in his culture, the Roman sexual ethic. Their sexual ethic said that as a male Roman citizen, if I'm a man who is a Roman citizen, I can and probably should have sex with everybody or anybody who is below me in status. So that was considered right and good. So a a Roman man, a Roman citizen man, he can have sex with his wife, he can have sex with other women, he can have sex with, with men or women if they are below him in status. For example, his slaves, his household slaves. It's a sex ethic of hierarchy and power and oppression. Clearly not what God ordained back in Genesis 1 and 2. What God gave us in Genesis 1 and 2 is a sex ethic of equality and mutuality, mutual love and mutual respect between a husband and a wife. And the Romans have completely twisted that, and a lot of the Christians in Rome, the Corinthian Christians, are living in the current sex ethic. Does that sound familiar? Are any Christians living in the culture's sex ethic today? Are any of us? Yes. The answer is yes. Go like this. Yes. So here's the question. As we look at this list from verses 9 and 10, why did sexuality, here it is, we're 2,000 years later, we're standing, I'm standing up here 2,000 years later, how did sexuality become our identity but none of these other vices? That's my question. Sexually immoral, I mean, obviously Paul's using words that all of us would say like, well, I, I don't like those words, but basically sexually liberal, sexually expressive, no, that's good today. We would all say, not we all, but our culture would say that's good. Adultery, polyamory, we would say, oh, that's good, that's the, we should go in that direction. Homosexuality, yeah, that's your identity, that's good, live your truth. But why didn't we say that about greed? thieving, reviling, swindling. Why is there no thief pride month? Why aren't we standing up for reviler rights, swindler rights? Something happened in 2,000 years, didn't it? And I don't have time to talk about it all. I would love to. The teacher in me would love to. I don't have time to walk us through the enlightenment. Thomas Jefferson, the pursuit of happiness as an ultimate good. Pursue your happiness. I don't have time to talk about romanticism and Jean-Jacques Rousseau saying that the greatest good in the universe is to do what you want to do. We don't have time to talk about nihilism that eliminated God. And we don't have time to talk about postmodernism, which eliminated truth. We don't have time to talk about how where we are today, moral therapeutic deism that says, God is here to affirm me. I decide who I am, and then God says yes to that. We don't have time to talk about the freedom narrative that we're all living in, that we have to overcome oppression. Freud said, we're all sexually oppressed beings. 
Religion oppresses us sexually. Society oppresses us sexually, and we must break free. We don't have time to talk about all that. And we don't have time to talk about how we have become what Charles Taylor, philosopher Charles Taylor says, the expressive self. He calls it the expressive individualism of today, where, again, we believe that the greatest good is to be authentic, is to be our true selves. Something has happened over the last 500 years, hasn't it? Over the last 50 years. The sexual revolution, we don't have time to talk about that either. Today we live in a world, in in February, just this past February, the Washington Post published an article with the headline, one in six Gen Z adults are LGBTQ identifying. One in six. Let me me break that down for you, for those of you that don't know anything I just said. (laughs) Gen Z is the younger generation, so like our high schoolers going into college, our 20-somethings, okay? So as I'm looking out in this audience, there's some Gen Z people in, in the audience, right? So, one in six Gen Z in America are identifying as LGBTQ. One in six. As a church, if we do not address this, I mean, we're already losing this battle. And, and it's about to be a flood that overwhelms us. But why? Why is that number exploding? Why is that? Is it because suddenly all of our young people have learned, learned who they really are? They've learned how to express their true identities? Or could it be that we actually express an identity that we learn from the surrounding community and culture that we live in? Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's actually all, it's all bogus. Expressive individualism, live your truth, be your true self. Nobody does that. Nobody. I live as a Christian the way my Christian community looks at me and helps me to live, right? I live as a pastor based on the way the other four pastors look at me and talk to me and form me in those meetings every week, right? I don't, I don't go in there and make up my own mind about stuff. Why are, why are so many um, identifying as LGBTQ? Is it because, not because they've learned to express themselves, but maybe it's because they're conforming. Is that possible? So the LGBTQ Christian might say, this is who I am, Brady. I, I, I tried to pray the gay away and nothing happened. Why did God make me this way? Obviously, God made me this way. I need to be true to myself. I need to be authentic. I need to be who I am. And so my question is, is that who you are or is that how you are? Is that who you are or is that how you are? Is your attraction, is your desire who you are? Are your choices who you are, or are they how you are? 
Are you a spirit, soul, and body? And is it possible that just because on the body level I have a desire, I have an attraction, and yes, that impacts my soul, but is it possible that I can also have a spirit that is holy and different and has a different desire? Is that possible? And we would say from Scripture that it is possible. You see, we don't need to accept an identity this morning. We need to accept a Savior. We need to accept a Savior. And that would be my number one plea. I'm not, I'm not standing up here this morning telling anybody to, to change the, you know, the, 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 first, the first thing I want to say is not change your sexual desires today or, or change your sexual behavior today. The first thing I would call you to do is change who your Savior is. If you're trying to save your own life through your sexuality, you're going to fail. You're, you might even die. Verse 11. Praise God for verse 11. And such were some of you. Oh, what a great word. What a great word. Were. Past tense. And such were some of you. You see what Paul's doing? He's crushing the idea of my sexuality as my identity. He's saying, that is not your identity any longer. And then he goes on to tell us who we actually are. We are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is who we are. That is our identity. And listen, this, is this church still struggling, struggling with sexual sins? Yes. Chapter 5, chapter, all the chapters really. They're still struggling. They, he's saying to them, who you are is washed, sanctified, justified. How you are is still a train wreck. How you are is still sexually immoral. But here's the Christian life. Live up to who you are. You are washed, sanctified, justified. This is my favorite mug. My daughter made this mug. It, it says TLIC, that's the blog I write. And, and so she made my little logo and she put it on there and she made this mug for me. It's, when it sits on the shelf with all the other dozens of mugs, it's just like every other mug, isn't it? If I drop it, it'll break. What makes this mug special? I love it. <laughs> I love this mug. I have sanctified this mug. <laughs> I choose this mug e literally every morning. My coffee goes in this mug. I drink out of this mug every day. I have sanctified, justified, and cleansed this mug. It's my mug. Because it came from someone I love, right? Someone I love made this mug and brought it to me and said, here. Christian, that's who you are. You're God's favorite mug. A, a jar of clay. <laughs> Drop it, it'll break. 
touch it, it'll chip. But he loves it. He loves it. It's special. That's who you are. The problem is we're mugs with brains, aren't we? We're mugs who sometimes say, you know what? I don't really feel like being your favorite mug today. I'm going to go out and play in the mud, right? That's what we do. We need to be brainless mugs a little bit more often, don't we? Just faithful mugs that allow God to use us. Number two, lesson number two. What we do with our bodies images God and His salvation, doesn't it? What we do with our bodies images God and His salvation in Jesus. The word body dominates verses 12 through 20. It dominates it. Paul is, in verse 12, Paul is quoting Corinthian catchphrases back to them. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be dominated by any. 13, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, one and the other. Paul is quoting them back to him. Here's what we know. 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, uh, there were other letters before 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul is writing back to them in response to an earlier letter. And they asked him all kinds of questions in that letter. Questions about, can we sue each other? Questions about, what should communion look like? Questions about, what should women do in church? Questions about sex. Here he is answering those questions. One of the things they said to him is, all things are lawful, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. Or they, or they said this, food for the body, the body for food. In other words, the body's not important. I should just do whatever I want with my body. Sex is just an appetite, like being hungry or thirsty or sleepy. So, and they are reflecting a Greek mindset, a Platonic, Plato mindset that said that the body is base that the body is even bad, and that the point of life is to escape the body. God doesn't care about our bodies. As long as we have spiritual experiences and spiritual gifts and, and big spiritual knowledge, as long as we have all that, God doesn't actually care what we do with our bodies. They've created a dualism, a body-soul divide. Does that sound familiar? We're doing the same exact thing in our culture today, aren't we? We've created a body-soul divide. In our culture, um, we, we've separated what we value from the truth. And which is more important? Is truth more important or is how I feel more important? How I feel is more important. And along with that, we've separated the self or personhood from the body, Right? This is, this is why we live in a culture today that can say these two conflicting things. My sexuality is everything, and sex is no big deal. Isn't that exactly what our culture says? My sexuality is everything. It's my complete identity, but, but actual bodily sex is no big deal. Just hook up, have sex, you know, it's, it's an appetite. It's not very different from the Corinthians. But God says there is no divide between your soul and your body. They're connected. God says the body is good. It has a purpose. Your body will be redeemed. So why does, why does God call sexual sin wrong? Why does God call homosexuality wrong? 
Is it because, some, because sexual sins are worse than all other sins? No. We saw the list. It's in a list with things like thieving and greedy, greedy and drunk and revile. He's not singling it out as worse than any other sin. Is it because at their core, uh, LGBTQ people are, are worse people? Are we against gay marriage because uh, homosexual people will be worse parents and they won't, they won't be as nice and they're lousy citizens? Is that our argument? It better not be. There has to be a much bigger reason for this, right? And that's what God is going to show us. The answer is because, here we go, here's the answer. The answer is because sex is worship and worship is imaging. I'm going to say it again a bunch of times. Sex is worship, worship is imaging. Sex is worship, worship is imaging. So why does the Bible limit us to heterosexual marriage sex? Here's why. Because that's what images God. That's what images God. Anything else can't be worship. Let me explain. Think about the Trinity. The Trinity is a Father, the Son, the Spirit. They are different and yet united. Different, united. Different, united. Heterosexual marriage sex is two different people united. Let me illustrate. This is my wife, Joy. <laughs> Don't illustrate, somebody said. <laughs> I just meant the difference. She is different from me. Do we all agree to that? In the beginning, God made, said, let us make man, let us make humanity in our image. Do you remember that verse? Genesis 1, 27. And then what does it say? Male and female he made in order to image himself. Why did he make two different people? Because God is different. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They're different and yet united. Are you with me? Thanks, Joy. Okay. Sex is worship. Worship is imaging. Sex in marriage is meant to join together three different into one. The man, the woman, and God. The man, the woman, and God. So in a Christian marriage, the man, the woman, and Christ are joined together, three into one. What does that do? That images the Trinity. This is the basis of our ethic. You say, well, isn't sex about pleasure and partnership and procreation? On a sublevel, yes, but even all of those are meant to image God. Sexual pleasure is meant to image the pleasure we have as we relate to God, and God relates to us. Sexual partnership is meant to image our partnership with God. And procreation is meant to image how in Christ we bring more people into the family through salvation. It's all a physical expression of a spiritual reality. Christ and His bride, 
Christ and his bride in a covenant union. No take backs, no escaping, no no fault divorce, unconditional, married forever, Jesus and his church. That's what your marriage and your married sex life is supposed to reflect. If it doesn't, if it, without it, you say, well, what's the big deal about not having that, Brady? Because it's dangerous. Because when you take marriage covenant out of the equation, you're left with performing and perfectionism and truly an unconditional love. That's what you're left with every single time. God's sexual ethic, His commands about our bodies are not arbitrary. They're deeply rooted in the unseen realities of God and of Christ. So with that in mind, let's look at what some of these verses say and how they show us how important our bodies are. How important our bodies are. Verse 12, look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Here's what Paul's saying. Sure, freedom, do you have freedom? Sure, but your freedom is always bounded by love. It's always bounded by, am, is it, will it dominate me, and is it actually good for other people? So that's a, that's a base, baseline to what we, we think and how we decide what we're doing. Verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Christian, your body is eternal. And, and, and listen to me, this, this body... This body, the body I'm in, is eternal. Do you understand that? Is Jesus in the same body he went into the grave with? Oh, we don't know, do we? Uh-oh, uh-oh, class. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. How do we know? Because it still has the holes in his hands. The crucified body walked out of the tomb. Your body will walk out of the tomb, so to speak. This body will live forever, relating to God forever. So start now. That's, that's the point. That's Paul's point. Your body's going to be raised up. And guess what? In heaven, guess what there won't be in heaven? Sex. There won't be sex in heaven. Wait, we're going to live in a body that won't ever have sex? Yeah. That sounds terrible. No. Because God will, will produce so much more pleasure for us that the pleasures of this life will, will be like, what? What was that? That was mud pies, and now I got the beach. Right? That was lollipops, and now I got steak. Verse 15 do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Whoa, this is huge teaching. Our bodies are the body parts. That's what members means. Our bodies are the body parts of Christ. We share a body with Christ in a very real way. Our bodies manifest Jesus. Jesus lives through your body. You are Jesus with skin on. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. And the crucified Jesus, the sacrificial Jesus, the suffering Jesus. 
The suffering, crucified Christ wants to express that through your body. Not through your self-expression and you're finding all the pleasure you can while the getting's good. Not in you sowing your wild oats. That's not Christ. 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's using a specific Corinthian example here. In, in, in Corinth and in Greek culture, Greco-Roman culture, they would, they would have these feasts. The men would have these feasts and they would literally, you know, we make jokes about toga parties. They would literally don the toga and they would have these feasts where they would eat, drink, and be merry. Paul references that in chapter 15, remember? If there's no resurrection, we might as well just all eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, be merry means sex. And they would bring in prostitutes. And when a young man was 17 or 18 years old, he would start to go to these parties and they would give him his first toga and he would put on his toga and he would eat and drink and be merry. And clearly some of these Christians were still throwing these kind of parties. He yells at them in chapter 11 about their communion service, their love feast. And what does he yell at them about? Do you remember? You're a bunch of gluttons and you're a bunch of drunks. You see what they're doing? They're copying the culture at communion. <laughs> no. Don't you know? So here's what he says. Don't you know that when you join physically to a prostitute, you become one body with her? The word body here is the Greek word soma, which means self. You become one self with her. This is deep. This is really deep. At the very minimum, Paul's saying, what we do with our bodies affects our psychology. It affects how we think. It affects our attitudes. It affects our character. Even deeper, on a theological level, what he's saying is anytime two people have sex, they are creating a new reality. They're creating a new thing. And for a Christian to go around and create a new union and abandon it and create a new union and abandon it and create a new union and abandon it, that, that disrespects humanity, that disrespects Christ, and it disrespects the church. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Church, this is everything. This is, this is the apex of the argument this is the center of the argument. This is the Christian life. Christian, you are one spirit with Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the foundation of all Christianity. No other religion claims such a thing. Muslims don't say, we are one spirit with Allah. They don't say that. <laughs> we share the spirit of Christ. We share a whole life union with Him. There's no division. We share a body with Him. We share a spirit with Him, don't we? This is what changes us. We are changed from the inside out. Christ in me changes me. He changes my desires. He fills me with love. He fills me with compassion. He fills me with something that says, I don't have to just seek my own way or find my own, my own authentic self or, or pursue pleasure. I don't have to have the pursuit of happiness. I can live a sacrificial life because the greatest sacrificer of all time is in me. 
Verse 18, so flee from sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Is the church fleeing sexual immorality? Are Christians fleeing sexual immorality? Pew Research from last year, 2020, 57% of those who identified as Christian, 57% said that premarital sex in a committed relationship is okay. 57%. said that casual sex is either always or sometimes okay. 51%. And of that 51%, 36% of those classified themselves as an evangelical. That's what we are. That's what we would call ourselves. We are an evangelical church. Are Christians fleeing sexual immorality? Are we doing what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife came? Are we running? Do we understand the danger of it? Do we understand that it's a trap, that it's an addiction? It literally alters your brain chemistry. Do we understand that? That it's dehumanizing? The rest of the verse is really hard to understand. Super hard. It's the hardest verse in this section. It's one of the hardest verses in the Bible, in my opinion. When he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, I I don't know. (laughs) There's been over 20 different uh, understandings of that phrase written by by scholars. 20 different ways to interpret that phrase. Here's here's, at the bottom line, here's what Paul's saying. Sexual sin is really serious. (laughs) It affects you. It changes you more than any other sin. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Christian, your body is the Holy Spirit's temple. This is just another way of saying, this, saying we are one spirit with Christ. This is, he's just elaborating on that. Back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he said to the congregation, you plural, he said, plural, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, church. Here in chapter 6, he's saying, you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Temple of the Holy Spirit, 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 temple of the Holy Spirit. We are all combined to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when a Christian looks at me and says, you know what, Brady, my sexuality is my own personal private business. You have no no right to get into that with me. No, I have every right. Because you're, you're a room in the temple. You're a room in the temple. If I owned a grocery store and I said, Andrew, you're in charge of dairy, and Bill, you're in charge of meats, and Ken, you're in charge of fruits and vegetables, and, and, and Ken's, Ken's department's a, a wreck, it's a disaster, and all the fruit is rotting, and Ken says, Brady, you know what, mind your business. I'll run my department the way I run my department. He wouldn't have a job very long, would he? (laughs) Listen, your sexuality is part of the community's sexuality. I know you don't want to hear this, and I know you're disagreeing with me, and you're already forming your arguments. But listen, how many of you have, have dropped out of ministry because of guilt over sexual sin? 
How many of you have not got, ever gotten involved in ministry because of shame over sexual sin? How many of you have broken relationships with other Christians because of sexual brokenness? How many of you as, as, as brothers in this church, men in this church, can't even look at your sisters in Christ without lusting after them? And how many of you as women in this church can't even deal with the men because you just can't trust men? They're all pigs. How many of you are spending hours and hours online in porn addiction instead of serving the Lord and praying? Don't tell me that your sexual sin does not impact the body. Verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Christian, your body is owned by God. Bottom line, this is his summary statement, God owns you. <laughs> he bought you. He purchased you. You're his favorite mug, right? Jesus bought the mug, made the mug, and then handed it to dad and said, dad, here's the mug named Brady. I bought this for you. And the father God says, this is my favorite mug. And he's got like millions of favorite mugs, right? <laughs> the church is his favorite mug. Your body is owned by God. He's redeemed the whole person, not just your soul. He's redeemed your body. You've been purchased by his blood. Our bodies express our faith, don't they? Lesson three. I know I got to hustle. Lesson three. How can we experience victory over sexual sin? How do we experience victory over sexual sin? I'm going to give you three, three ideas. Number one, flee sexual immorality. Understand the danger of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, Greek word porneia. Flee porneia. It's, an, again, an all-inclusive word. You, can't, you cannot read this passage and say, well, as long as I'm not doing the prostitution thing, I'm okay. No, you can't interpret this passage that way. Paul uses, Paul sums it up with the word that means it all. Anything outside of a covenant marriage relationship, heterosexual covenant marriage relationship is porneia. Don't play with it, run from it, flee from it. I've been watching the news about these wildfires out in California, and the fires are moving so quick that literally people are, are being woken up in the middle of the night. You need to get out of your house. And they had one, one lady on the screen said, I just couldn't leave. I, cu I, couldn't, I couldn't abandon my house. My family's been in that house for years. You're gonna burn. You see what I'm saying? That's the illustration. God, Christ is looking at us and saying, you're going to burn, get out of the house, get out of the house, get out of the house. The pornography, get out of the house, get out of the house. The prostitutes, get out of the house. The romance novels, the fantasizing, get out of the house. It's on fire, get out of the house. But Brady, I need sex. Don't I biologically need sex? Listen, I'm going to tell you, this is a myth there is a myth that we have been told, and the church, the church has told it, that men need sex, women need sex, but especially men need sex. Listen, listen Jesus didn't have sex. Was, was, Jesus, was Jesus unfulfilled 
in his manhood? Was Jesus sexually frustrated? <laughs> We've, we have taught Christians, we've taught Christian couples this myth. We've told wives, if you don't, if you don't satisfy your husband, you're gonna, you're, he's going to fall into sin. Listen, married people, listen to me. That is not true. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that every single person should control their own body. It is not your job to control your husband's body. It is not your job, husband, to control your wife's body. It is your job, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, to share your body with your spouse. But that does not mean that it is your job to make sure they're not sinning. You are not their savior. Number two, how do we find victory? Listen, if all we ever said to you, and a lot of churches do this, if all we ever said was, run away from sexual immorality, we, we, just, we just got a bunch of people running around, nowhere to go, <laughs> right? Uh, 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 uh. That, that is not the final answer. It's the first answer. It's the first answer, get out of the house. First answer, but it's not the final answer, because otherwise now we're all just living on the streets, right? And we just move back into the burnt-out house after it's done. We have to make Christ and His love central. In other words, you've got to run to Christ. Run away from sexual sin. Run towards Jesus. Let Him be the object that you run to. The worship of Christ, Christ as center, Christ as the most satisfying thing in your life, Jesus as the greatest beauty, the greatest desire. I get it. Listen, you say, Brady, that's so hard. He's invisible. You know, First Peter, though we don't see him, we love him. Remember? It's like, Brady, you're asking me to fall in love with an invisible man. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's your advice? Yes, that's my advice. That's what I'm saying. Fall in love with Christ. It's the only way. It is truly the only answer to overcoming sexual sin. Sex, sexual, sexuality, other than God himself, it might literally be the most transcendent thing God's ever given us, isn't it? One of the most glorious things God's ever given us. It's no wonder it's such a strong temptation. But there is something even stronger. There's someone even more beautiful. There's someone even more glorious. His name is Jesus. And though we don't see him, we love him. And we hold on to him. We're expecting sex to give us what only Jesus can give us. Sex will give me freedom. Sex will give me authenticity. Sex will give me belonging, identity, excitement, transcendence, power. Nope. It'll actually steal all those things from you if, if done sinfully. But Christ can truly give you all of those things. Why? Because He's ultimate and He's eternal. He's ultimately good and He's forever. Everything else is a signpost pointing to Him. Don't build... Remember my sermon from a couple weeks ago? Don't build your house under the sign... Finish the journey. Remember that illustration? California, 2,000 miles away, and you see the sign? You say, oh, what a beautiful sign. 
I will build my life around the sign. No! Drive to California! Sex! Oh, what a beautiful sign! I'll bid m build my life around sex. No! Drive to God! Sex is just a sign of God. Listen, if you're same-sex attracted, if you're struggling with gender dysphoria this morning, uh, the, your, our goal for you, my goal for you as the pastor who loves you is not that you become heterosexual. Our goal is that you love Jesus, that you obey Jesus, that you find in Jesus a satisfaction. If you're single here this morning struggling with celibacy, our our prayer for you is that you would embrace the spousal love of Jesus Christ. If you're married here this morning and sex is just a reward-punishment game that you and your spouse are playing, our prayer would be is that you see sex as something far greater than just your own personal pleasure, your own performance within a marriage relationship. And then finally, Church, we have to love each other. If as a body, as a church, we're going to overcome sexual sin, we have to love each other through it. Not deny it, not sweep it under the rug, not pretend like it doesn't exist, definitely not shame it. What? You're same-sex attracted? <gasps> where's, where's that teenager going? They're going to go to a community that'll love them, right? They're going to go find a community of friends that will love them in the midst of that revelation. Church, if we cannot hear those revelations from each other and say, I still love you, we will lose each other. We have got to be a family that comes together loving each other, accepting, forgiving, freeing each other up, unconditional love. I could talk about this all day. I got to be done. Truth, safety, friendship, burden bearing. <laughs> the church has to be our source of intimacy and joy. The church has to be our, our source of intimacy and joy. Seek to make it that. That means you got to get involved. That means you got to reach out. That means you got to know each other. That means you got to hear each other's stories and not be shocked at each other's stories. Loving each other through it. Burden bearing alongside. Helping each other to run from immorality and towards Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for a home, a house where we can come together with our family and be loved, be accepted. We're not perfect at this. We got a long way to go. God, I pray for any here this morning that are still wrestling, not, not with sexuality, but wrestling with you, Jesus. I pray that today they would receive you, that they would receive Jesus. The sexual peace, you'll, you'll bring that along. You'll bring that along. Jesus, turn our hearts toward you. I pray for any Christian here this morning, God, that feels so discouraged, so beaten up, so guilt-ridden, shame-filled. Help them to claim, verse 11, such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Christian, embrace it. Receive it. You are God's favorite mug. Set apart for him, for his glory. Claim it. Embrace it. Live into it. 
Jesus, empower us for this. We pray in your name. Amen.